But we're still in the first chapter of the book of Colossians, and um, we got down through verse 6 last week, so we'll pick up again in verse 7 tonight, and I hope I can speed up just a little bit, but I think it's important we understand that, especially the way that Paul writes, that these aren't just words on paper. Um, a lot of times, especially, we look at epistles in the Bible, we see a bunch of words running together and we see a lot of things happening, especially with Paul's letters, that we miss the full impact of what he's trying to say. I'm a firm believer that, that Paul and every, is very, very concise in the language that he uses. And he's already done a, a good job of that and bringing out some beautiful word pictures for us, but also in a very mighty way attacking the very heresy that's in Colossae. And he, of course, will continue to do that tonight. We are in the book of Colossians in chapter 1. And Paul, after making a greeting of telling who he is and emphasizing uh, how important it is to be in Jesus Christ, he begins in chapter 1 in verse 3, a prayer. It starts off, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And almost the entire chapter of chapter 1 of Colossians is a continuation of this prayer. And um, we've already seen the things that he wants to give thanks for in verses uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6. And now he's going to explain why he knows the things for which he is going to be thankful in this prayer. And then beginning in verse uh, 9, he's going to add petitions to this prayer. And of course, that's the way a prayer should be uh, followed. We should always have things that we want to thank God for in our prayers, but we also should ask God for things in prayers. Um, even in the Lord's Prayer there in Matthew chapter 9, uh, the, the prayer begins with, give us this day our daily bread. And then there's other petitions in that. My point is that you know, there's nothing wrong with asking God for stuff, and there's nothing wrong, of course, obviously thanking for God for stuff. And sometimes we have prayers of pure thanksgiving. Sometimes we have prayers of pure petition. But it's our hope that every prayer should have both thanksgiving and petition in it. And this is the case with this uh, particular section of Scripture where Paul continues his prayer. But after making mention of he was thankful for them because he's heard about their, their hope and about their love and about their faith and about how that the gospel came to them and how that uh, they understood and knew what the grace of God was in a very special way, he tells in verse 7 how he knows about all this. And we've already alluded to this in the introduction of this particular book, but it says in verse 7, As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. And so there we discover that Paul knew about the church at Colossae and what was going on there because of this particular man by the name of Epaphras. Um, as we mentioned earlier, we do, Paul never visited the church in Colossae. He didn't establish that church there. As far as we know, this is the first communication he ever had with this congregation. Everything he knows about this particular congregation, he gets from this particular man. And uh, this man, evidently, um, some historians think, uh, lived in Ephesus and was converted there and went to Colossae uh, to convert uh, people there and became a very active member in the church there. King James Version uses the word minister, so some people think he might have been the preacher there, but the book of uh, Philemon and Philippians leads us to believe that there was someone else who might be the minister there, but we'll talk more about that when we get to it in just a moment. 
But the main thing I want you to understand is that this is how Paul knew about the church in Colossae, because this is how he learned about it. Anyway, but Epaphras is there in Rome with Paul, and he refers to him as our dear fellow servant. And I was just curious if anybody else had anything else besides fellow servant. Beloved co-worker, okay? Anything else? The actual Greek word here is the word for bond servant. Uh, it means a servant who is under... Did you have that, Michael? Oh, go ahead. You want to say something? All right, slave, okay. Uh, this is a man who is, uh, who is indebted to someone. Uh, in Romans' time, you had people who were slaves because of captivity, and you had those who were slaves because of being indentured to someone. Uh, even in this country, in its history, you had what was known as indentured servants who were paying off a debt. And how in the world, uh, when he says, our dear fellow servant, he's referring to himself, he's referring to Epaphras, he's referring to the church at Colossae. How were they all fellow bond servants? All right, through Christ. Um, they um, owe a debt to Christ, and therefore... Uh, they were his servants. We are servants of Jesus Christ. Um, a couple things that maybe, you know, doesn't matter a lot to you, but I always like to discuss it just in case someone is doing some studying on their own and they notice a discrepancy, and we'll make sure we clear any discrepancies up. But the King James has, as ye have learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a fellow minister of Christ. Now, there are some people who have something different in their Bible because there are some textual variances here. You pick up what the difference is. King James has our dear fellow servant who is for you, a faithful minister. All right, see, there's something different there. There's a difference between you and our, isn't there? And the reason being there is a textual variance here is because there are some manuscripts that have the word you, and there's some manuscripts that have the word hour. And therefore, that causes some, uh, some discussion. But either way, it doesn't change any theology. It doesn't change anything. Um, the idea here is, um, and you, maybe the NIV has this, but it's talking about that he is something that he does something on behalf of someone. Okay? Uh, is that what the NIV has, is behalf of? All right. And so he's either talking about how that he uh, was a faithful minister on behalf of the church at Colossae, and there wouldn't be anything wrong with that, or he's talking about how that Epaphras is now in Rome, and he's a faithful minister on behalf of Paul. He's helping Paul out. And you can see how either one of those would work, of course, and I tend to believe that this is talking about uh, the church at Colossae, because that makes more sense, because he has been talking about the church at Colossae, and not so much talking about himself, so um, I, I tend to lean he's talking about them, and that makes more sense, so maybe the King James has it right here, but also, go ahead, yeah, on your behalf, okay, so, yeah, so he's saying that, um, they, they put it as then he, they've got two things going on. They've got him helping Paul, but he's helping Paul on their behalf. Okay, so that works well too. And, but um, there is a textual variance there. And the King James here um, says, refers to him as a faithful minister of Christ. Um, the word faithful there, 
we oftentimes think of someone being faithful. We think about them being faithful as far as being faithful to God. And certainly Epaphras was faithful to God. But here the word carries with it something different. It carries with it more of the idea of someone being dedicated and trustworthy or that they're diligent in what they're doing. Uh, Obviously, he is faithful to God, but the faithfulness talking about here is not talking about religious faith, but it's talking about the idea that not only is he working for you, he's very diligent in working for you. He's working hard uh, for you or for, for me, depending on how you want to look at it. And then in the King James, we have this interesting word, minister, and I bet some people have some things different than minister. The word here is the Greek word deaconos, which, what are you going to say about that, Michael? All right. All right. Here is the same word we get the word deacon from. King James translates it, translates it minister. Um, it could also be translated servant because that's what a deacon is. Uh, but it is the word for deacon, and um, it's not used in the sense of, of him being given the title, though there can be some argument made that maybe perhaps Epaphras was also a deacon in the Lord's church, though we have no evidence of that. It wouldn't matter if he was or he wasn't. doesn't change anything, but it's interesting that the word here, deaconos, is the word that is used also for deacons, but it means literally a servant, uh, and certainly... We have someone here who is a bondservant, but he's also who is one who is very faithful or trustworthy or dedicated in his service. He was someone who was a very hardworking person is the point I believe that Paul wants us to make. And then in verse 8, he says, he's already told him all, this th- all these things about the church at Colossae. He He kind of brings it around full circle to his his first part of the prayer. And he says, who also declared unto us your love in the spirit. Now, you remember earlier when Paul was talking about uh, the church at Colossae at the beginning of his prayer, um, he talked about how that uh, since in verse four, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, he's already talked about their love. And he's talked about how that they had remained faithful in spite of the problems they were facing, and they had had love for all the saints, and that would be including the ones who were causing the trouble. And so Paul comes back around and almost repeats himself here in talking about their love again, but he's kind of bringing this whole thing to to a a close about uh, how he knows about them, and he says, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Now, here we've got to deal with some changes in the Greek language again and in textual differences. And I don't know why this two verses right here had the differences of, of problems here. Uh, there is one a little bit later on in verse 12, but, but here we might want to do some investigation. First of all, in the King James, it says, Your love in the Spirit, capital S, Spirit. Which, if you read that, that would make you think about their love in the what? All right, oh, the Holy Spirit. All right, part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And so, I guess it, it could be translated that way. And if it is translated that way, what would that mean? All right, they get the Gnostics. But how does one have love in the Spirit? Define that for me. That's what I want to know. How does have, one have love in the Spirit? 
I went up to you and said, I, I, have love in the Holy, I have love in the Holy Ghost. Our love is based in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. What would you say that was? All right, that's not a wrong answer. Absolutely. What the Spirit has done for you has created love. Yes, Michael. Um, but anyway, get it back. In the Spirit, if this is talking about the Holy Spirit, then it's the love that is directed by the Holy Spirit. It's the love that comes about because of what we've learned from the Spirit. It's a love in that way. And Michael, did I cut you off? I didn't, okay, okay. They weren't sure because that phone call threw me off. But here's the thing we need to consider. First of all, Spirit is capitalized here in the King James, but it's capitalized in the King James because whoever translated the King James uh, decided that it should be capitalized. There is no such thing as a certain word being capitalized in the Greek language. In fact, the original manuscripts and the, trans, uh, the copies of those manuscripts are in all capital letters. Uh, the, they, the way they wrote Greek, Koine Greek, and the way the New Testament is written, is in all capital letters. So there's no distinction made here with a capital S. This is done. And if you look at some of your translations, I bet you have some that maybe have a little s. Anybody have a little s? I don't know how many different translations we got. But here's another thing that's important, and we talked about this a little bit the other night in our Sunday night question and answer period. There is no definite article in front of spirit in the Greek. And we remember we talked about Sunday night, that a definite article talks about a specific something, and so forth, the definite article is, no, is not here, and therefore, literally, it should be translated in spirit. Also, it's unusual in the fact that Paul normally doesn't just use the word spirit. He does occasionally, but most of the times when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he uses the word Holy Spirit. And so there are some people who believe that what's being talked about here, because there are some textual variances uh, in the way people translate this, that this also could mean that they have what is known as a loving spirit. Uh, They are people who have the spirit of love, which ties in to what was being talked about at the beginning of this letter when Paul refers to the fact that he has heard about the love which he has to all the saints. And it's like he's wrapping up the section right here because now he's going to start going into petitions. He talked about all the things he heard about them. And he says, I learned this from Epaphras, and now that I've told you about who I heard this from, let me once again tell you that he's the one that told me about your love. Either way, it's not a problem. It's not a thing wrong with being, being known as people who have love in the Holy Spirit, being, being loving people because of the Holy Spirit, um, or it could be talking about um, having the right kind of spirit. Uh, over in John chapter 4 and verse 24, Jesus reminds us that God is the spirit and you that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And if we are correct in the way we understand that, the truth part is according to scripture, but we always talk about the spirit being what? The right attitude, the right kind of way, the right kind of heart. And that might be what he's talking about here. You are Christians that Epaphras has told me about that have the right kind of heart. You love in spirit. You love from the heart. But before we leave that, any questions or comments? And I don't need to mean to bog you down with just textual stuff like that, but uh, I know some of you find it interesting, and I don't want anybody to say, well, that's not what my Bible says, and you know, think that there's some kind of problem. 
We always like to explain things when we come across something like that. But anything else? All right, so beginning at verse 9, it says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire. Now he's going to begin a section of petitions to God. These are things, after thanking God for the Colossae brethren, now he's going to start petitioning God for things to happen to them. And these are very important things uh, that are needed to deal with the situation in which they are dealing with, with the Gnosticism and the Colossian heresy. These are very important things. So he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now the very first thing that he prays for is that they be filled with knowledge. Now why do you think he prays for that first? Very good. He's saying, I'm going to tell you about the real knowledge. In fact, it's interesting what he does here in the Greek. The word for to know or knowledge is gnosis, okay? It's G-N-O-S-I-S, which we get the term Gnostic from because they thought they had special knowledge. But here in the Greek, he uses a word called epinosis, which means better than knowledge or the actual knowledge or the best knowledge. Now, just reading that, you don't get that. But if you go back to the original language and think about what Paul was doing, he is saying, I'm giving you a knowledge. I want you to have a knowledge that's far superior than what these other guys have been talking about. They claim they have a special knowledge. Well, I've got the epi-knowledge. I've got the knowledge above all knowledge. I've got the very best knowledge that you need to know. Don't listen to them. Yes. Well, well, see, you would never be able to understand that. No, seriously. (laughs) But that's how they worked. See, the Colossian heresy was based on Gnosticism, and Gnosticism was based on the idea that, that certain men had special knowledge that other people couldn't attain. And so if I, even if you came up to me back then and said, well, how do you know this? And why are you the one? You, well, you say, I'm sorry, you just can't understand. You know, you just, don't, you just don't know what I know. And you just don't have the abilities that I have. I'm sorry. You know, I'm just above you, okay? I mean, literally, that's how it worked. And um, they, they put themselves on a pedestal. And there was a lot of spiritual and intellectual snobbery going on. And if somebody disagreed with them or confronted them, they'd just say, well, you just don't have what I have. Uh, I remember years ago when I first started preaching and, and I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, there was a congregation, of course in Knoxville there's churches of Christ on battle in every corner, but there was a church right down the street that started doing some wild stuff and for whatever reason my elders decided that we needed to meet with their elders and as is the case, I guess we got stuck in the middle of it all as kind of the moderator. And so we were asking questions back and forth and I just you know, finally got to the point and I said, well how in the world and I won't discuss what they're discussing, but I said, how in the world can you do this in light of this and point it to Scripture? And they said, well, you just don't have the understanding we do. That was their exact words. And what can you do from that point forward? You know, if they, if I, they can't, you know, won't look at Scripture, and they say that it means something totally different than what the Bible says, how can you argue with that? And needless to say, the meeting didn't go much longer. Um, but um, that wasn't an enjoyable evening for me because... I, the elders wanted the meeting, but kind of put me there as be the one that had to do everything, and I don't like doing that. But anyway, so he starts off saying, my prayer for you is that you have 
the best kind of knowledge. Um, Epinosis carries with it uh, to know exactly. Um, another way that the Gnostics work was they use uh, mysticism and, 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 you know, stuff like you really can't be sure. It's better felt than told type of thing. Paul says you can have an exact knowledge, and I want you to have this exact knowledge. It's not up for opinion. Uh, we've already talked about how that the gospel are facts to believe. Paul says I want you to have a special knowledge in the sense I want you to have the real knowledge. And so that's a dig into the ribs of the Gnostics. But then he doesn't stop there. This knowledge that he wants them to be filled with, and by the way, the word filled here is an interesting word in the Greek. It means completely or know exactly in a sense. This word is used sometimes if you um, ever, um, well, in Paul's day, they had this thing about incense and about sweet-smelling ointments and whatnot. Uh, It carries with it the idea if you were to pour a a sweet-smelling ointment in a house and as that sweet-smelling ointment started to be exposed to the air, eventually it would spread all through the house. And so in every room in the house, you'd be able to smell it. The whole house would be filled. And that's the idea here with the word filled. He wants them to be filled up with the epinosis, the right kind of knowledge, the right thing that you need to know. Don't be listening to what they're knowing. But then he goes on after saying being filled with this knowledge of his will, he goes on and says, in all wisdom. Now, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? All right. You take your knowledge and use it for wisdom. And in fact, you take knowledge and, you've, and wisdom is how, what you do with that, right? Um, anybody can have knowledge, but they do nothing with it then they're not using wisdom. A person can have wisdom, but that wisdom's without knowledge, and it's worthless wisdom. But most people think he's making another dig here at the Gnostics because another part of the Gnostic faith was the idea of blending Greek philosophy into the religion. And when we see the word wisdom there, we think philosophy. Wisdom is philosophy. Uh, what is your wisdom on the meaning of life? Or what is the fact wisdom... Of, of different aspects of life, you know. What do you, your wisdom is your philosophy. So Paul wants their wisdom or their philosophy, not to be the Greek philosopher's point of view, but their philosophy and wisdom comes from, why? Because they have the absolute knowledge of God. And so that's a very another very important thing. And so he goes on and says, have spiritual understanding. And the spiritual understanding here, uh, if, I, if I was to ask you right now, what is spiritual understanding? If I asked you if you had spiritual understanding, how would you answer and what would you say it was? All right, an understanding of the Bible. That's an answer. What is it you understand about the Bible? All right, God is God, okay. Go on, I mean, I'm not being funny. I'm trying to... Are you learn wisdom from the Bible? I'm sorry? Are your belief? And what is your belief? Are you believe in God? If you believe, let me keep taking you down the path because this is what Paul wants them to do. You get the absolute truth from God, the epinosis. That creates you to have wisdom or a philosophy or plan or what to do with this knowledge. And it leads to spiritual understanding. Now, you said... You believe there's a God. 
And you said you believe in a God? Most certainly. All right, if you believe in a God, what else do you believe? All right, Jesus is the Son of God. All right, was raised from the dead, but he also died on the cross to save of our sins, okay? And because of that spiritual understanding, we also understand how we are redeemed, right? We are, there's a scheme of redemption all through the Bible, beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 all the way to the end. There's a scheme of redemption brought out. So the spiritual understanding, most people think Paul is pointing back to those things that he talked about earlier in this book about how that they should have hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you've heard of from the word of truth of the gospel, how that you knew the grace of God in your understanding. He's saying, I'm fighting you, or I'm wishing you or desiring of you that you come to the point in time where these men that are in this church that are bothering you about your salvation and about your redemption, you don't worry about it anymore because you know the facts, you've got the wisdom to do something with it, and you finally come to the understanding and conclusion that it's the gospel that saves, that gospel is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that should put an end to this discussion you're having with them. That's spiritual understanding. Um, Or you could look at it that he's talking about a broad spiritual understanding. But then the question is, what is it you need to understand? What would he want them to understand? Well, in the face of what he's dealing with, I think he'd want them to understand um, about how God through Jesus Christ saved mankind. In fact, it's funny, he's going to start talking about that in just a little bit. But he goes on after saying that we've come to the conclusion As far as the scheme of redemption based on knowledge and wisdom, he goes on and says that you might walk worthy unto the Lord. Now, what does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord? I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding of this. How does one walk worthy of the Lord? All right, live according to his directions. If you walk and live according to his directions, you're worthy of him now. That's what the text says. But this is talking about action. He's saying walk, which is an action. We walk worthy of him. I saw Jeff's hand first, and I'll go Michael. Well, just deal with that word perfect just for one second. In the, in the Bible, when you see the word perfect, we automatically think of no, 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 nothing. It's all just boom. But the idea in the Greek there for the word perfect is meaning complete. You are completed. Uh, uh, you can even translate it well-rounded. You have everything that you need. Um, and so, but I, I like exactly what you're saying. I want to touch on more of that in just a moment, but I want to leave Mike hanging here. All right. All right. So you're saying that the walk that's being talked about is not the walk that makes us worthy, but it's a way that has been provided that is a good way to walk. All right. I like that. What were you going to say? There you go. All right. Now we're kind of getting to the idea of what worthy means here. It's not the idea that we do anything that is worth of worthiness, okay, because we can't. Um, If I asked you today, right now in class, how many of you walked worthy today? Well, some of you might have done the best that you could today. Uh, Maybe maybe this is one of those days that happens every so often when you didn't mess up once. Now, I, I doubt it, but you had a day where you didn't mess up once. Are you still worth worthy? Have you still walked worthy? No, because we can't. We You know, it's like Jesus says, uh, or Isaiah says. He says, um, you know, all our filth and all our righteousness is as filthy rags, okay? So what's being talked about here is the idea of not deserving 
It's not walking because of deserving. It's walking because we know the worth of is the idea. Christians live the way they live because they know and appreciate what God and Christ has done for them. It's the idea of, of knowing the value of something. It's a walk that I'm walking because I know the uh, value, uh, realizing the worth of something. It's, it's, it's not so much the reason why I'm walking, it's the result of why I'm walking. Does that make sense? I'm doing what I'm doing because of what God has done for me and what for Jesus Christ has done for me. Um, too many times in Christianity, we look at Christianity as a uh, checklist, if you will. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, and if I complete all these checks on the box, not, don't, don't misunderstand me, there's things that we need to do in God's Word, but we look at Christianity as a box checking as opposed to a life we live because of what He's done for us. A lot of people have problems coming to church because they look at it as something I have to do. But a person who's walking worthy or realize the worth of their salvation, they come to church because of the fact it's something they want to do. Uh, other things that are part of Christianity, uh, we don't do them because we have to or because we're scared of hell. We do it because we want to because we realize the worth of what has been done for us is the idea here. And he's going to... to uh, go on and explain this even more as we go through the text, but just make sure we understand that. Any questions? Do you have a question, Karen? Or you, all, right. all right, so he goes on and says that you walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Now, we have a real difficulty here. This is the only place in the entire Bible this particular word appears. And nobody knows for sure exactly what Paul had in mind here when he said all pleasing. Because first of all, in the King James, all-pleasing, how would you define that? May please him in every way. Uh, there is some discussion about whether he's talking about pleasing God here or pleasing other people. Because like I said, this word here is never used anywhere else in the Greek in the New, in the New Testament. And forms of this word, when it's used every other time in the Bible, is talking about pleasing other people. So there's a little bit of a of, of discussion here about exactly what he means. But obviously the idea is here, we want to walk worthy so that we will please him. And the reason why we want to please him is because we realize what he has done for us. And because of what he has done for us and our willingness to please him, we're going to be fruitful into every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. So he comes back. Full circle, why they need to be filled with the knowledge of his will. But then he goes on and he says, Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. So look what he's done here. And I think this is interesting. He tells us that because of our knowledge of the scheme of redemption, how that God has saved us, that's going to cause us to walk because we realize the worth that we have been doing and that we need to do what we can to please God by being fruitful in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of God. But then he goes on and he says, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power. Now, he just talked about how that we need to walk worthy and how that we need to bear fruit 
and we need to please God. Well, what's going to happen as we do that? Well, all right, we'll be stronger Christians if we do it, but what's going to happen every day we do it? Like I said a few moments ago, how many of you had a, walked worthy today? I don't ask him for hands, but how many of you walked worthy today? How many, if you take it literally from the King James, how many were all pleasing to God today? Everything you did was pleasing to God today. It's not going to happen. We, as sinners, are always going to mess up even things that we don't even know that we messed up in. All right. But, Jeff, what happens if you're one of those people who didn't make it that day? And yesterday you were closer, but today you weren't as close. Uh, Maybe you lost your temper. Maybe somebody pulled out in front of you at work and you said, all right, we won't say what you did. I was just trying to think of all the things I know you did. Uh, No, anyway. (laughs) But would it be possible for a person who is doing that, he reads Paul's text here and he says, man, he wants me to walk worthy. He wants me to be all pleasing. He wants me to bear fruit. I didn't do that today. I messed up. Would it be possible for a person to say, "I, I, I messed up, therefore what's the point of trying? There you go. That's why he says what he says here next. You know, there's two sides to this always. He, Paul understands the fact that he's dealing with the Gnostics in Colossae, and guess what the Gnostics told them at Colossae? If you want to be saved, you've got to do this, to this, to this, to this, to this, and you've got to do it perfectly. If you're not, then you're not the kind of person I am, and you'll never reach the, atten- the attainment that I've reached. You haven't climbed enough rungs of the ladder yet. And so Paul is buffering this by saying God expects us to walk according to the worth of what we feel of our salvation, but he's adding this to it now. Yes, Jim? It's not a sprint, it's a marathon, exactly as you said. A new leap every day. But as I've even had discussion with some of you in here, we, some days we're on peaks and some days we're in valleys. Paul understands that after saying what he says, lest he get too caught up in performance because that's what the Gnostics were doing. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power. Now, what's interesting about here in the Greek is Paul, and it's hard to translate, so King James did the best they could with it, and your translations did the best they could with it. But we've got two words almost exactly the same stacked on top of each other here to get the sentence we've got. We've got Didymus, Didymus. And anybody know what that means? We talked about it not too long ago. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Power. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the word that we get our word dynamite from in English. So he's literally saying, you have power upon power. Your strength comes from the power over the power. You've got double power. You've got dynamite exploding on top of dynamite. Okay? That's where our strength comes from. Now, what has he done? He's taken that which is in verse 10 about walking worthy and all pleasing, bearing fruit, but then he adds to it God's power. And not just God's power, his power above power. It's power power. And it's based upon, as it says in the text, in his glorious power. This is something different than what we have. It's his power, his glorious power. The very image of glorious makes us think of God. 
And so when we are strengthened with that power upon power, as Barbara said, what do we get? We get patience and long-suffering. With what? Or endurance. Right. Um, in fact, um, you have endurance the word patience. Is that what you have? Yeah. And that's a better translation there uh, because it almost sounds like he's saying patience and patience because long-suffering is patience. But it's the endurance to hang on. It's the patience to hang on. And it's all based on the fact of joyfulness. Um, why is there so much joy in Christianity, especially tied in to, the, to these two verses, to verse 10 and verse 11? Where's the joyfulness in that? All right. No matter what happens here in this life, we know that we have a home in heaven. And if you don't know that you have a home in heaven, you need to do some more studying because Paul already told us in verse 5, the confident expectation we have that we already have a, an assignment or appointment up in heaven. And he's going to hit that again in just a minute. So, notice what he's told the church at Colossae. Because you understand and have the knowledge of God and understand how that God has a scheme of redemption to save you, you need to be worthy of the walk. You need to walk according to the worth of what you have received. And you need to bear fruit and you need to be pleasing to God. You need to, as the text says, you need to keep increasing your knowledge of God. But on top of that, because we know you're going to fail, be strengthened, endure, be patient, because you have God's power behind you. And if that is the case, verse 12 says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light. Once again, he's come back full circle. You notice he talked about our hope in verse 5. Now in verse 12, after going through all this, he comes back to it again. Now we're going to, we don't have justice tonight to spend the time I need to spend on verse 12 because verse 12 is so full of stuff. Oh, mercy, verse 12 is a wonderful verse. And I know that's what I'm saying. It's time. I don't have time to. So I'm just going to go ahead and stop there. Uh, but be thinking about verse 12 and, and how it relates to uh, verse 13 and 14. And um, we'll pick that up next Wednesday. But thank you so much for your comments and your attention.